I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 71 for May 2018. I'm Duncan, and 1971 was a very strong year for classic films. The French Connection, Carnal Knowledge, Straw Dogs, A Clockwork Orange, The Last Picture Show, Harold and Maud, Shaft, The Omega Man, and Dirty Harry. Wow. And uh, speaking of Eastwoods, it's also the birth year of my brother Sean, but 1971 is also known for the cinematic debut of one George Lucas with his dystopian vision, THX 1138. Oh. Uh, look, 1971 was also one hell of a year for horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, just listen to these titles. The Abominable Dr. Fives, Mario Barber's A Bay of Blood, uh, which is a real influence on the Friday 13 series. The Mephisto Waltz, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, <laughs> uh, Hammer's Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, a film that fascinated teenage Simon, mostly because of Valerie Leon in a lacy 90. Dario Argento's Cat of Nine Tales, the excellent The Blood on Satan Scroll, which I've spoken about before. Uh, Eye Monster, The Corpse Grinders, <laughs> and of course, Werewolves on Wheels. Right. Um, werewolves on Wheels. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a biker gang werewolf movie. Uh, of course it is. I have seen it. Um, however, there did seem to be a theme to 1971. Horror movies discovered sex. Mostly of the sapphic kind, as it turned out. We got everything from the Euro semi-art film fetishism of Vampiris Lesbos, uh, Daughters of Darkness, and Requiem for a Vampire, to the Brit boardiness of Lust for a Vampire, Twins of Dracula, and Countess Dracula. All in the same year. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, but amongst all those guilty pulp pleasures, it's genuinely hard to pick a favourite. So I'll just single out the cult classic Let's Scare Jessica to, to Death, a languid, dreamy ghost story that was derided upon release, but has seen its reputation grow since. Um, it's well worth a watch if you can find it. Yeah. Good luck. I've heard of that. Yeah, it's not bad. It's a, it's a real creepy, kind of slow-moving. It's very atmospheric. Right. Uh, very low budget. So... Um, the print I saw was pretty low quality, but it's uh, it's a lovely, lovely right. film. Yeah. And Simon, what have you been watching? No, not not a heck of a lot. I caught up with um, Avengers: Infinity War mm-hmm. and uh, backtracked to watch Black Panther. Uh, I watched Night of the Howling Beast, aka Werewolf versus the Yeti, <laughs> exactly as you'd expect. Uh, but the film I want to talk about is The Bad Batch. I read a review that described Anna Lily Ammon follow up to her wonderful A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night as her difficult second album, <laughs> which is kind of fair. Uh, the Bad Batch is messy. Its plot wanders and feels really self-indulgent. It takes us to, perhaps, I'm not really sure, a post-apocalyptic world whose rules I cannot begin to understand, and it's anchored by a performance by Suki Waterhouse that's best described as uneven, mm-hmm. particularly in the accent department, which right. is, I think, supposed to be Southern American, but just drifts <laughs> enormously. Uh, but after a month of kind of largely by-the-numbers mainstream movies, it's a treat to watch a film that swings as hard as The Bad Batch does. Ammon Poor has style to burn, and she's grabbed a really odd, eclectic cast. Um, Jason Momoa is a cannibalistic bodybuilder. Keanu Reeves a leering cult leader with a harem full of pregnant women. And Jim Carrey is unrecognisable as a wandering hermit figure with no dialogue at all. <laughs> um, I actually had to pause the movie and just go into IMDb and go, wait, wait, is that... That looks like... It is? It is? Um... It, the film also comes from one of my favourite post-apocalyptic oddities, The Delirious, A Boy and His Dog, which, you know, I really appreciate. So it's yeah, maybe not a completely 100% successful film, but it's a fascinatingly messy miss 
Um, and for me, that makes it kind of worthwhile. Right. Excellent. How, how about you? How, how was your month in film? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I watched quite a few, uh, quite a few movies. The one I want to speak about, though, is Wiener Dog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No invention in youth, no wisdom in old age, and no joy in living. Uh, <laughs> Todd Salons is a, should we say, a distinct director who has been descending into self-parody and now has embraced a post-modernism self-reference on like a Charlie Kaufman-esque level. Wiener Dog moves from a child's affection for a puppy into revisiting the characters from Salon's greatest creation, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Greta Gerwig, the Oscar-nominated director, does a creditable reinterpretation of Dawn Wiener, who is now a veterinarian that reconnects with her old boyfriend and tormentor, Brandon, now a vagrant junkie. Danny DeVito appears as the director's surrogate, a stagnating screenwriter and lecturer who has to contend with being taken down by listlessly entitled students that are utterly uninspired by him. Um, but all of this culminates in yet another movie-stealing performance from Alan Bernstein, responding to questions in curt sentences because there's just nothing left to say. Uh, yet she is in many ways the most relatable human in the film, given a strong final scene that completes the life cycle that Salons wants to explore. But the film, much like Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac, actually works completely as a metaphor for Salons' career. And like Von Trier, Salons wants to make it as uncomfortable and as unpleasant as he can. There's a sad misanthropy to Salons' work. And while Wiener Dog bears its teeth at the audience, one can't help but also see it smiling. Uh, it, <laughs> it really is quite remarkable to, to watch. And Danny DeVito's character especially is so clearly him. Yeah. And what he, he just talks completely in how he's been treated by the film industry and how he treats the film industry. Right. And uh, yeah, his students are just just think he's pathetic and and awful and uh, old, and it's just, <laughs> it's just brilliant. That's the spirit you'll be celebrating life day before you know it. And so, Simon, what's the news? All right, look, back when Duncan and I did our spoiler alert special on the films of John Woo, I described his 1989 gunfu classic, The Killer, as I believe pure Woo, mm -hmm. the film that best sums up his appeal and his particular strengths weaknesses and obsessions while also you know being deliriously violently entertaining uh for years rumors have floated around about a remake happening that all seemed most likely when Wu was working in the states with walter hill even attached as a scriptwriter. Mm -hmm. but since Wu returned to work in china killer talk kind of died right off until now whoa yeah with the announcement that Wu will direct an english language remake starring the peter nyongo in the role originally inhabited by chow yun fat whoa yeah anyway lots of questions Mainly, will Lapita be the subject of a slightly odd infatuation from a female cop? Will Lapita carry out an assassination with a fake moustache as a, <laughs> as a disguise? I really hope so. Yeah. And will the two leads constantly refer to each other as Mickey Mouse and Dumbo? <laughs> uh, I can't wait to find out. Yeah, that's a, that's a really original twist on that, actually, to some extent, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that it's taken this long. I feel like it's taken maybe too long. Yeah, um, sure. And I don't think it's going to be filmed in America. I think it'll probably be a Euro, you know... Right. Um, a, a European film, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, French. Um. Oh, that'd be that'd be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think, m m like you say, it's probably you know the the steam's definitely run out of that out of that kettle. Um, but probably it's come back around. You know, right. so a whole new audience have no idea and possibly won't be comparing it to. Um, oh, look, you know what I mean. I hundred percent. There's not going to be an audience going to see this who's. I mean, you and I, yeah. there isn't going to be many people comparing it to the original and the thoughts of, of that. Yeah.
Well, it's just speaking about Lars von Trier and uh, another Cannes Film Festival, another Lars von Trier rampage of controversy. Uh, von Trier said, I do know a bit about psychopaths. I've never killed anyone myself. If I do, it will probably be a journalist. Uh-huh. Uh, he also said that it's quite important not to be loved by everybody because then you've failed. I'm not sure if they hated the film enough, though. It gets too, If it gets too popular, I'll have a problem. And, of course, he's talking about his film The House That Jack yep. Built. Uh, which was decried as vomitous and pathetic, and it has mass walkouts while others clapped at its finish. Uh, the trailer is about as confronting as trailers get, and my suspicion is that Von Trier isn't at the height of his powers when he confronts subjects too literally. Nymphomaniac was less film about sex rather than a critique of his own film career, yeah. but it was also not as enchanting as Melancholia or as disturbingly haunting as Antichrist. I like him gambling with narratives, dancing with ambiguity and building up to shocks, Making films about nymphomaniacs and serial killers feels like a pastiche of the Danish wild man, not vintage Von Trier. Yeah, yeah. I just thought this was uh, kind of classic Carnes, really. Oh, look, totally. Um, I felt I, I remember when we did Nymphomaniac. I remember yeah. the photo shoot we did from Nymphomaniac. Too, by the way. But I remember <laughs> I'm sure everyone else does as well. <laughs> okay, I can't forget it, no matter how oh, hard they try. Good lord. Um, yeah. But I remember feeling like it was uh, almost a parody of, like someone was doing a ripoff of yeah. Lars Von Trier at the time. And um, but the thing about this news story I love is all these people are outraged. Like, wow, what a hot take! You're outraged for a, by a Von Trier yeah. film. Yeah, that's right. Have you never seen a Von Trier film? <laughs> it, the idea that you would be shocked and find it um, risable yeah. or vomitous or whatever is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Harden up. Yeah. You know what you're getting into. <laughs> so you might remember a couple of years back we talked about horror director Lucky McKee's The Woman, uh, which was in the news mostly because of its. Von Trier-like talent for riling audiences up, particularly one Sundance cinema goer who had a total meltdown after a screening. Uh, now, the woman is getting a sequel. Uh, Darlin sees the feral young woman of the original now in the care of a bishop and a group of nuns who are trying to, to transform her to prove the, mirac- the miraculous power of the church. I assume things then go terribly, terribly wrong. I, mean, yeah. I, yeah, I hope so, anyway. What grabbed my attention is that Pollyanna... Macintosh, a Walking Dead regular, and the original girl from The Woman would be returning to the role and has written and directed the new film as well. Oh, right. Which is pretty great. Yeah. I mean, I like The Woman a fair bit, and I love the idea that Macintosh is this attached to the role, and I assume the genre. So I'm really looking forward to watching Darling. All right, yeah. That sounds interesting. I almost completely forgot about The Woman. Yeah. Mm. Um, I didn't mind The Woman. I thought it was a really interesting film, and mm. I always had a lot, a lot of time for Lucky McKee. Mm. But I love the idea that this actress is like that keen to go back to that role. Yeah. And, you know? I mean, it's not going to be a, um, a multiplex filler either. No. Not, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I love the fact that she's this attached to something that's so culty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I uh, look forward to seeing how that turns out. Yeah. Look, there's a film called Nothing to Lose is Brazil's biggest film of the decade, selling tickets by the bucket load. Nine million tickets, to be exact. But it has played to near empty cinemas. Uh, for example, there were two screenings at a cinema in Rio de Janeiro that were sold out online and at the box office, but for both screenings were populated by a grand total of three people. What? The reason for this anomaly is because Nothing to Lose is made and distributed by the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God. The film glorifies their leader, Ida Macedo, and the theory is that the church has been buying tickets to make it a phenomenal success. Apparently, they did the same thing with books in the US and UK market, making their books bestsellers in nations that seemed fairly unfamiliar with the church. And it's insane. Nine million tickets. It's the biggest film in Brazil since 2002. Wow. And yet, it's playing to empty cinemas. I just... 
<laughs> that's mind-boggling. I mean, what are you proving if you're doing that? I, I mean, know. I mean, because you're not reaching. You're just wasting money. You're not reaching yeah. an audience. You're not converting anyone. Or no, you're just saying, well, it's the biggest film, and yeah, and then everyone's going, but no one I know has seen it. So how yeah. can it be? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? That is that is a great story. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to lose except a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and look, and finally from me, as you probably all know by now, I can't let a Hollywood veteran's passing go unmentioned. And this past week, Patricia Morrison died at the age of 103. Mm-hmm. Morrison was best known for her stage roles in Kiss Me Kate and The King and I, but she had a decent run on the silver screen opposite everyone from Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy to William Powell, Deanna Durbin, and tragically Lon Chaney Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a real Hollywood beauty as well, which saw her cast as femme fatales and villains, once even going up against Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. She never married, and in interviews remained coy about her past lovers, though less coy about the men who tried it on, which is great. She had a particularly fun story about Yul Brynner inviting her to his dressing room where she discovered him stark naked. Uh, she also talked about touring to Auckland, New Zealand, back when that country was not very well known. <laughs> great. And she kept working. She was last seen on TV in 1989 on Cheers, Mm-hmm. But her stage work continued at the age of 99. 99! Mm. She performed at several benefits for AIDS research and the LGBT community. And she was still singing and giving fun, anecdote-filled interviews. I read a couple that were great. What a gem, you know? Um, so rest in peace, Patricia Morrison. You lived an incredible life. Yeah, she did. I mean, she. Uh, I, I had this news as well. And she uh, She was born in World War One, and then entertained the troops on stage at USO shows in World War Two, And, you know, just died this year, which yeah. is amazing. She also was infamously cut out of the notorious 1947 noir film, Kiss of Death. She sure was. Uh, which we'll have to review in the future because it is a nasty piece of work and famously has Richard Woodmark channeling the Joker as a psychopathic gangster. So apparently Richard Woodmark in, a, in 1947 was a fan of the Joker from the cartoon strip. Wow. And said, I'm going to do that. And so it was cackling maniacally as this, uh, you know, almost like on a Heath Ledger level. Yeah. He's bringing it into a film noir gangster film yeah. as the Joker, which is pretty amazing, right? Yeah. But Morrison receives no credit in the film because her character suffered her- an horrific fate when she was raped by the man supposed to protect her. And then she commits suicide by putting her head in the oven. Yeah. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, this was a little too much for the censors in 1947. So her entire role yeah. was removed. And they even had to do sh- a couple of days reshoots to yeah. kind of work around the yeah. logistics of it. Oh, because apparently uh, rape was a no-no, but so was suicide. Yeah. And those are kind of two defining parts of her character. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah. I quite like saying silver screen back there. It felt real old-school Hollywood. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, and as you say, you know, we love uh, the silver screen in this, you know, 103. 103, I mean, you know. yeah, yeah. And what you must have seen in that time as well. Oh, incredible, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and still be performing when she was 99. Yeah. Um, you know, I read one of the interviews I read with her. She was she was re- re- really curious right up then. She was mm. asking about the Book of Mormon, what it was like and things like oh, that. Right. And really curious about what was happening on stage. And yeah. um, I loved it. You know, she played uh, Maid Marian in a film as well. Did she really? Yeah. Oh, right. There you go. The uh, 1947, I think it was uh, The Prince of Thieves. It was oh, brilliant. Film. So there you go. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Awesome. I wouldn't worry about Chewbacca. I know him and he hasn't missed a life day yet, right? All right, welcome to No Comps, where we guide and review a film that's on a new release. And really, could we go past Solo, a Star Wars story? Starring Alden Ehrenreich, Amelia Clark, Donald Glover, Paul Bettany, Woody Harrelson, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and teen heartthrob Clint Howard. Directed by Ron Howard <laughs> and written by Lawrence and Jonathan Kasdan. 
While escaping the mean streets of his home planet Corellia, Han Solo is separated from his partner Kira and winds up trapped in an Imperial cell where he befriends a Wookiee named Chewbacca. After escaping, the unlikely couple team up with a band of thieves to rob an Imperial transport, but there are greater complications awaiting them. Oh, that's a good synopsis. That was way better than mine. I've got to say. <laughs> look, look, this is the first film in the new Star Wars releases, and I, I only realised this recently, that exists solely to be fun. Mm-hmm. Solely for that reason. There's no Dark Wars story, no need to set up a new trilogy or a feeling that it should somehow reinvent or at least dare to change the rules of Star Wars, as some people think The Last Jedi did. It's simply a ride. Uh, shootouts, space battles, and for once, maybe a bit of a, a love story. Mm. Uh, it's breathlessly fast and never dull, but it's also kind of weightless and as inessential as many people, I imagine, suspected it would be. Mm-hmm. It's also, for me, the most forgettable Star Wars film of the franchise. Right. Uh, a film with no iconic images or moments that somehow leaves you wanting less. Right. Well, I've got to disagree with you. I enjoyed awesome. the hell out of this ah, movie. Ah, love it. I think it's just really well made, straightforward heist movie with blasters, gambling, and the Millennium Falcon ripping through asteroid fields. It doesn't get bogged down in Skywalker lineage, Force mythology, over-emotional character interaction, and rubbish side plots. All the characters are likable and well-cast. Han and Lando are on point. The insanely talented Donald Glover is good in the role that he could carry in his own movie. And Chewie hasn't been this well-handled since the original trilogy. Just a fun adventure film, just like it should be. Now, Alden Einreich does a good job of inhabiting the character without descending into mimicry. He has a chemistry with everyone, I thought, from Clark to Glover, and especially Chewie. Einreich is no Harrison Ford. But then again, who is? Even The Force Awakens Han Solo isn't a patch on A New Hope's Han Solo, and they're played by the same actor. So I think that, for me, that's the kind of elephant in the room, is is Einreich as good as Harrison Ford? And the answer is no, because I genuinely think Han Solo and Harrison Ford, particularly in that era, are just untouchable. Yeah, look... I, ne- I never got... Look, I liked a lot of the other characters in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of fun supporting characters, I thought. So, John Favreau's four-armed Rio, I thought was a charming creation at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I actually really liked Woody Harrelson. And Paul Bethany, I think, gets a lot of menace out of quite a few scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the standout for me was uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's L3, a kind mm-hmm. of droid version of a suffragette. Yeah. Fighting for robot rights while also maybe carrying on romantic relationships with Lando, which I thought yeah. was great. She's a delight. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I liked a lot of the characters here, almost all of them, actually more than the man that the film was about. Because I just never got past the idea that I was watching someone play at being Han Solo, Mm -hmm. uh, wearing the gun belt, testing out the smirk. Um, But he just lacks the natural swagger, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Something that Harrison does so easily and so naturally. Um, There's a scene in the trailer, and it's in the trailer as well, where he's just met up with Amelia Clark's Kira, and they're walking together, and Alden in the solo garb looks like a 16-year-old kid wearing the tux he just rented for the school ball to me, you know? Yeah. And I don't know what his arc is here. It shouldn't be from wide-eyed dreamer to kind of cynical, out-from-self smuggler. We should, you know, mm. we should catch him sort of becoming the character he is Absolutely. in Star Wars. Instead, he seems to go from nice guy, well, to still pretty much a nice guy. Yeah. I kind of felt at the end he should have had a bit more rogue in him and a bit more, If you, do you know what I mean? What, 100%. He's, and he's, he's basically making the story that the original films made him take. Yeah. And that's, and that's completely down to the script writers. And you want to know what the other thing is? It's people being too scared to make their lead character in a massive blockbuster uh, even sketchy or unlikable in any way, shape, or form. It's people running from that. And that, to me, is a failing of current blockbusters, really, because they're too scared. They're too scared to do it with their lead yeah. guy. They don't want to do it. And <laughs> they should. You're right. They, 100% they should. 
and they don't want to do it. And I, I think that's a sad indictment on current movies, really. Because I sort of realised after I watched this that this film would have worked just as well without Han Solo. Like, if it yeah. had been instead of a solo Star Wars story, if it's instead a bunch of folk pull a heist a Star Wars story, yeah. I think it would have worked just as well, because yeah. unless, unless you can actually tell Han Solo's stories, yeah. Han Solo's story and his character growth, yeah. and his character growth isn't, I got the Millennium Falcon, a guy gave me a gun, yeah. you know, I'm wearing the jacket now. That's yeah. not his character. No. And I think it's that's all it did with his character. Yeah, it's the same as Rogue One. So Rogue One, there's not an essential character in the entire film. It's just all interchangeable people, and it doesn't really mean yeah, anything. But but they all die at the end of it. Oh, yeah. spoiler alert, folks. So <laughs> they, they all die at the film, so I'm not as bothered by that as the fact that no. this guy ends up as this other character, yeah. and therefore we should be seeing how he becomes that character. Yeah, yeah. Especially when he starts so wide-eyed and innocent at the yeah. beginning. I know, and they shouldn't have done that. They should have had him cynical from the beginning and just had him... Uh, opportunist right from the get-go. Uh, Clark and Harrelson and Bettany are all reliable and lean on their established personas from other films, but none of them leap out as memorable new characters, unlike, like you said, L337. Uh, as droid empowerment droid Phoebe Waller-Bridge does some great work, you know, with motion capture and voice. I just kind of felt that, you know, the the identity politics is almost like this near-exclusive form of communication which i found just a little whoa it's all on the nose for right for star wars you know it's like oh okay and that's what i mean with like here's han solo kind of slightly becoming a background character in his own film and yet here's l3 this memorable character because it's all this progressive idealist yeah. kind of thing and i'm like i don't know if i really want to see that in a star wars yeah film. that's an interesting take I, I guess i liked it because it, it kind of makes sense in the Star Wars universe that there should be a droid, given that they develop their own personalities, yeah. that was annoyed at the way droids were treated. Oh, yeah, that yeah, that's, that, that's fine. But then it's just like exclusive, exclusively how they... Except for one scene, which is actually the scene that I really like, which is the heart-to-heart in the Falcon uh, with Kira, that allows L3 to be like a relatable glow of humanity. Yeah. Um, and I thought that did a lot for for it. Um one thing I really liked as well, though, is uh, it also resolves, without giving anything away, it also resolves the Greedo shot first conundrum uh, in a really satisfying way, Yeah, this film. Uh, and it also liked how it starts in the middle of an action sequence, how Solo just jumps into the middle of an action sequence. Yeah, it does muck around, eh? Yeah, I really like that. And again, you know, uh, more films could do could do with that. Plot-wise, Solo doesn't do anything too risky. It doesn't double down on double crosses or throw many surprise and Thank God for that, because as a regular listener, you can probably tell my estimation of Solo also benefits from the increasing suffocation I've felt while watching the episode entries. This film is like breathing again, and both Rogue One and Solo are just refreshing in their simplicity, and mm. I think that's something that's really bothered me uh, with as we've gone through Force Awakens and Last Jedi. This is at least a straightforward film that I don't have to... That is one of the things I liked about it a yeah. lot. Um, yeah. You know, I've realized, too, I've really fell out of love with the Force. Yeah. Like, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Luke Skywalker and, you know, wearing black and returning the Jedi and looking kick-ass and using mm. Force powers. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, the prequels killed a lot of that by showing the Jedi as being the most boring people in the universe, basically. Yeah. You know, with stupid rat tails and, mm. you know, rules galore. Um, but the new films haven't done much to really bring back my love of the idea of the no. force too because it's i don't know what the force is anymore to be honest no. you know is it a power of good or is it a power of um good that needs to be balanced by evil in mm. some sort of loop that will go on forever do you need to be trained or do you just get it apparently yeah you know so the films that don't have the force yeah. work better for me 
Absolutely. And a big part of my problem with Force Awakens was um, Daisy Ridley's character being able to just be, you know, mind control people. Yeah. Within an hour. And I like, okay, there might be some explanation for that, but I just don't find that satisfying as a viewer. It's like, oh, well, you know, we might get, you know, to the end of the third film and explain exactly why she could do that at the beginning of the first one. But that doesn't make me enjoy the beginning of the first one yeah. three years ago when no, I watched no, no. it. And I don't know if this is true. <laughs> this might not be true. But I heard someone say that in the novelization of The Last Jedi, she receives force power by Snoke's death. Like it, right. it leaks out into her somehow. So of that's course. why. Why she's able to afterwards. Yeah. Of course she could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you need to read the book to be able to understand the movie. Look, anytime you have to step outside the films for justification of why things <laughs> happen. Yeah. Look, there's a line in the Brit comedy Garth Marini's Dark Place, which I love referencing. I love that series. If you haven't seen it, seen it it's all on YouTube. Um, wait till the end of this podcast and go watch it. Um, it where he says, I know authors who use substance. Subtext: They're all cowards. <laughs> uh, Garth would have loved Lawrence and Jonathan Caston, who've delivered a script made entirely of surface. It's mostly a backstory demystification device, content to explain everything from the Kessel Run to how Han Solo got his name, while showing us heists that are all heist action and no heist mechanics, which is, I think, my problem with the heist. Yeah. You know, it looks great visually; it's a treat, yeah. and it's fun to be there. But I actually liked to. I I got the sense that I might be getting a film where we showed the planning to a heist and got. Yeah. Um, and one of my fears going into this film was that it would shoehorn too much backstory in. I figured I could probably handle two or three things. Mm-hmm. So, like, Han meets Chewbacca and he gets his hands on the Millennium Falcon would have been yeah. enough for me. And, but Solo kind of overloads for me on the Solo mythology, meaning that some things we want to see are skipped and others are breathlessly raced through. And some, like Han Solo getting his name, are just kind of a little mawkish for me, brief mm-hmm. and, and entirely unnecessary. I was frustrated that we see Solo sign up to join the Empire and then we jump forward three years, mm. and he's a grunt on some mud-bound outer rim planet. And look, I loved the idea of seeing the front lines of the Empire. Mm. You know, that's a bit of story building and world building that I was really, you know, keen on. Yeah. Um, just the, the fact that the Empire is expanding and meeting resistance, and we get yeah. to see that is really great. It's a cool snapshot of the Star Wars galaxy. Mm. But I think it would have been a lot cooler if we saw Han Solo as a rising star of the Imperial Navy. Mm. Um, learning to fly TIE fighters, becoming top of his class maybe, and then eventually becoming disillusioned with the Empire and becoming a deserter. There's a whole three years there of character yeah. that they could have delved into, and it would have been really fascinating. Mm. Um, that's the part of Solo I want to see, particularly since this seems to be the formative time for his character, mm-hmm. you know, not the bits we actually see yeah. in the film. And I felt the Kiss, Kessel Run was a bit of a loser in this because I've had a lifetime to imagine what the Kessel Run might be, you know? Yeah. I've been able to picture it as something epic. Perhaps a series of events have to be completed, requiring Solo to do a number of clever, inspired manoeuvres. But this film doesn't really have time for that. And while I do love the Lovecraftian tentacle monster, I mean, how could I not? Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, I really do. I also wish we'd gotten the impression that the run was an incredible achievement, something yeah. other characters should be in awe of, which is not the sense you get from this film at all. Uh, yeah, this yes. could have been an entire film, the Kessel Run. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Look, the thing is that the Kessel Run sequence I thought was impressive visually, and I thought it was quite tense, and it's never going to live up to how mystically iconic it has become in Star Wars lore. Uh, but I actually thought what we do see to see is the effect on the narrative, particularly why they need to do the Kessel Run that quickly. So at least it's tied into that, mm. and and the idea that Han is the only one who can do it in that time, and everyone else who is supposed to be good smugglers and pilots like Lando and Chewie, they do appreciate that it you know, the achievement of doing it in 12 past six, if you round down, of course. If you round down. Um, <laughs> because they're saying, well, it can't be done in any quicker time. And both Lando and Chewie do comment on it. So, yeah, look, it's it's not ideal. Uh, it's It was never going to live up to it. I think the thing is, a solo is a beneficiary of low expectations for me. 
And yeah, I, I'd agree. Every single film they've released, my expectations got lower and lower and lower uh, to the point where, and with the original trailer of this, with the all the problems behind the scenes, um, with the idea of doing a Han Solo prequel, none of that inspired me in any way, shape or form. So I just keep getting lower and lower and then throw in The Last Jedi in between. I just, I think, I just enjoyed the ride and I it's, it wasn't great. Um, it wasn't, but this, and the stakes weren't particularly high, but I found that refreshing yeah. and I found that it didn't have this massive uni- universe reduced down to just, you know, Daisy Ridley being able to fly all around the place in two and a half hours and just mm. do everything in the whole universe and yep. the only person who can affect anything in this, in this, in this, you know, world. Um, and, and like you say, I was enjoyed that the force wasn't there. Yep. Uh, that was nice. Not having to deal with that, such a weight and it's so, um, conveniently used sometimes and then inconveniently, you know, and then conveniently dropped at other times. And it's yeah. just, yeah. I mean, it didn't have any of that. So, yeah. In a, talking about broader, anytime you have a magical thing, uh, yeah. whether it's magic itself or the force, yeah, it, it's a problematic. It's a problem cinematically because it can do whatever you need the plot to do. Yeah, and look, this is um, veering off into another franchise, and I know that yourself and a lot of people love Prisoner of Azkaban from um, Harry Potter. It was always my problem with it. it was like, oh, time okay, tra- you can time travel. Yeah. Oh, we, we don't need that in the next four films. Maybe you do. Yeah, maybe you. Maybe do. you might. <laughs> Be pretty handy to hold on to yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, Time travels. Time travel. Uh, you know, sometimes it works. It's just a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a souffle. It's you've got to treat that right. You have got to treat the audience right with that kind of yeah. stuff. And um, and force is the same. I think. I think, yeah. like you say, magical powers are the same. You, it's a, it's not as easy as it looks. So this is, this is removed from, any mention of the force is removed from here, or the Jedi really. And, um, yeah, and that's great. <laughs> it just makes me go, oh. oh. look, I feel the same way. And I think also these films um, that are kind of trapped in the middle there between films we already understand, mm. you know, between Star Wars and Empire or between um, Sith and Star Wars, like this and Rogue One, mm. um, really benefit from that because mm. they don't have to imagine what the galaxy is going to be like 30 years on. Yeah. And my problem with Force Awakens was it immediately didn't have enough imagination to think mm. what that would be like. It was yeah. just like... You know all those things you liked? It's that. It's X-Wings and, you know, the Rebellion mm. and the Empire, even though we'll give them different names, you know they're the same thing. Yeah. And it's Stormtroopers and Star Destroyers and an evil leader and mm. uh, Princess Leia as a general. It's all those things you remember. Yeah. Uh, no imagination. I Well, little imagination, I guess mm. I should say. You know, it didn't really push that forward. Whereas these films, that, because they're in an established universe, they only have to do a little bit of extra to show us something new. Like, yeah. You know, they show me a mud-bound... Uh, battle scene I'm like oh that's cool yeah, yeah that's awesome or one thing I really did love about this film is that they the Empire wasn't in it very much mm. it was all, all about these gangs operating on the edges of the galaxy yeah. and on the edges of uh, of the law and that's really fascinating for me because it's part of Star Wars that I probably assumed existed but I've never seen presented to me yeah that's you know? right um, and look so just to be a bit positive because I, I must have sounded really negative star wise <laughs> there's some really nice moments like I like, like I said I love that muddy war zone um, I like the cl- that collection of aliens playing Sabacc games. Yeah. I thought the whole Sabacc scene was really cool. Yeah. Uh, Solo has one of my favorite vehicles as well. That unconventionally sh- shaped yacht that Paul Bettany sails mm-hmm. around it. Yeah. What a cool ship that is, you know? Um, but there are some genre beats and references that were teased in the trailer that I kind of hoped the film had more of. 
I uh, wish they had more fun with the heist. Like I say, I would mm-hmm. love to have seen a, a clever setup for a heist. Yeah. You know? um, and I also would have loved it if the teasy shot of hand preparing to draw his blaster, cowboy styles, yeah. that actually led to more of a Western film influence in the film. Yeah. It's almost like you throw in a couple of shots, which like, oh, that's like a Western, but yeah. that doesn't actually play out in any that's right. In any way yeah. in the film. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'd say for the Zabak scene, what I really liked as well, is you had a card game where you didn't have to understand what was what's a good hand. Yeah. You know, obviously it's just a poker um, replacement. Yeah. But uh, so many of these films get bogged down. Like, And I'm not talking about Star Wars films. I just mean any films that have gambling in yeah. them. If it relies on the audience's knowledge of what constitutes a good hand, it can just be, you know, like wading through quicksand really as far as dramatics go, yeah. if you have to understand. So I do appreciate that. Uh, the other thing is Lando and Chewie and Han are all from the original trilogy. You've got these characters who are cool and, uh, okay, maybe they're not handled quite how they were in the original. But again, still, <laughs> Episode 7, Episode 8, um, even Rogue One and, and the new characters in this one, nothing. None of them memorable. None of them really iconic. Yeah, L three was was pretty good, um, but but that's it, you know. Mm. And uh, maybe BB eight, which is basically a R two D two replacement. Right, right. So, and you're talking about droids. You're talking about BB eight and L three, who are the, you know the two memorable characters. Yeah, I gotta admit, when people talk about um the new series of films and going how you know they have to wipe the deck yeah. clear I guess in a way and get rid of those old characters so that these new characters can move yeah. forward I did, that fills me with dread yeah. I thought yeah. what, those guys yeah. we you talked about forward with those guys we talked about this ad nauseum on Last Jedi but that was exactly my problem with it was like oh my goodness I'm yeah. going to be left with Ray and Poe yeah. and Finn and oh and Rose great those people yeah and, and this is the same you know I mean like Amelia Clark, she's a good actor and all the rest of it but do you really want to see what becomes of her character I don't know mm. yeah she's alright like, n- not bad, don't get me wrong. Paul Bettany, yeah, he's good, but is Paul Bettany doing his, you know, gangster number one, you know, dead eye kind of shtick, mm. which is great. I mean, believe me, he can do that. He can do that better than anyone. It was good. It was good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, and Woody Harrelson doing Woody Harrelson, basically, which is you always welcome people in it. Fanny Newton doing a mm. Westworld thing, you know, <laughs> like. Oh, I'll assume you'll assume Westworld well, thing. You, you, I you, Westworld, yeah, exactly. But you watch Westworld and it's basically... Yeah. What I mean is they're going, okay, I'm going to go into this. This is why they've got me in this is because this is the last thing I've done and I'm right. going to be I'm going to be that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, and that's what that's what I kind of felt with it. So um, they're all fine, but none of them leapt out. Whereas like Donald Glover as Lando is like, okay, it's Donald Glover who's got a hell of a lot of charisma yep. and so much talent, but he's also playing Lando. And... Lando's an interesting character. Like he's a he's a smuggler and he's a womanizer and he's you know all this kind of stuff. And um, there's room for him to move hmm. there. Um, yeah, and I agree with you about harm. They definitely misstepped on that, but I guess they didn't do anything egregious in it. They didn't do anything that completely bummed me out with the character. They skated over a lot of it. They did stuff which I really didn't like. With talk about his dad and things like that. And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to know about that. You know, I already knew going in that okay, they're going to do the Falcon. They're going to do the How He Met Chewie. They're probably going to do a bit of Corelli, Corellia. Mm. Um, and and unfortunately, I knew that they were going to do the name thing. And actually, I think the name thing didn't bother me as much as when I first heard that they were like, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't, no, no, I got it. It wasn't like, it wasn't oh, the worst thing in the, 
the way it was handled wasn't the worst way it could have been handled. Yeah. It shouldn't have been handled at all, in my opinion, mm. because oh, I agree. people just have names, you know? They don't mm. always have to have scenes where they get them. I think we put this on a tree of woe, didn't we? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, that's how bad it was before I saw yeah. it. It was like, oh, my God, was this guy just going to be named, you know, what's his real name? Like, yeah, Han Palpatine? Like, we're going to yeah, find something yeah. out about him? You know what I mean? Like, that's what I thought was going to happen. And the way they did it, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of throwaway nothing I yeah it's it's it doesn't affect anything it's not the worst thing in the world you're quite right yeah um, yeah look yeah. I, look for me i think the character probably if we're going to talk about original mm-hmm. trilogy characters the one who comes out the best of this is chewbacca yeah uh, and that's sure. because i mean if you're anything like a friend of the show james mccall yeah. he always thinks that aliens get a bad treatment in the star wars like it's a galaxy yeah. full of alien races yeah. and yet none of them ever get center stage or get enough attention yeah and chewbacca finally does he gets really good banter between him yeah. and han you know, he, he gets that moment where he's trying to flee slaves and, yeah. and help out an, another Wookiee, which is yeah. great because it shows that, you know, he's got more going on than just sitting in that co-pilot chair. Yeah. I mean, what is he doing in Last Jedi, you know? Oh. I mean, he's just an indentured slave at that point. <laughs> he's like a servant. Um, And this, he's he's got his own thing happening and, yeah. and, and, and some humor. I mean, when Han shows him that, um, his hand and that final Sabbat game, yeah. you know? Uh, so I think he comes out of it the best, and it's really nice to see one of the alien species in Star Wars. Uh, Chewie was a delight in this. Mm, he was yeah. delightful. And I honestly, I haven't enjoyed him probably even since Empire as much. I, I think he's even better than he is in Jedi. He gets stuff to do in Jedi and um, Return of the Jedi. But I just thought he was fantastic in this. Yeah. He's better than anything in Revenge of the Sith, better than yeah. anything in Force, definitely better than anything in Force Awakens in The Last Jedi. I, I thought there was some memorable things in there like that, that Guys, I can't explain this. <laughs> probably I can't. I can't explain this probably well enough. But the shot of like Han and Lando and Chewie at the base of the of the ramp up to the Millennium Falcon, shooting guns out. Yeah, that's what I thought about when I was a kid. You know, playing with the Kenner yeah. dolls. That was brilliant. That was like, yes, rush onto the ship. We've got to get this on here. There's guys shooting at us. It's like, yeah, that's what I want to see, and I love that. And then the you know elements of the Kessel Run, like fly, like making decisions, flying through. You know that that opening where he's like taking that land speeder thing sideways, trying to escape the the troops. Yeah, and then he doesn't quite make it, and you yeah, think, ah, yeah. oh, and then just grinds to a halt, and he says to Kira later on, "Hey, you remember that thing that I did? Yeah, yeah. Except this time it's going to work." And uh, yeah, and just the, the the shape that the Millennium Falcons in by the end of it, you know, yeah, him yeah. and Lando just <laughs> looking looking uh, kind of dejected at it. Um, I, uh, all of that stuff I really enjoyed, and uh, and there's little mo- music cues in there which were just you know got me smiling, right, right. like genuinely smiling, like Han and Chewie having fun flying through asteroids, you know, equivalent of asteroid fields, you know, flying through detritus in space while something's chasing them, um, with that music cue queuing in, and then the look on their faces as they're both sitting there, and I don't know, there was just moments in there that made me genuinely smile, and I certainly didn't do any of that, and um, last jedi <laughs> yeah 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 that's that's fair i can understand that yeah um so yeah so no i i think as far as like as far as the new because i've very much just split these into three camps the original trilogy prequels and then disney yeah, movies disney, yeah yeah and this by far is if you said hey you can put it on a disney movie right now every day of the week i put on solo yeah, for me, every day of the week, I put on Rogue One. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd let you watch the first half of Rogue One, and then just <laughs> give me a call, 
and then and then the second half I watch. Yeah, gladly. I think a lot of people say that. They, a yeah. lot of people say uh, Rogue One's not that great, but the second half is really, really uh, Ro- good. The Rogue One second half is awesome. Yeah, uh, first half is just I, I don't care. Yeah, um, sure. And whereas this, I think, yeah, I can see the, the, this as far as substance goes isn't necessarily there. And I, de- I definitely think they make you. You're right. They make some really poor decisions with Han and what they show us. Um, and I think maybe that's probably why I think of the actor more than, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because the script is doing him, isn't doing him too many favors. Uh, but I really liked his, his, um, chemistry with, uh, particularly with Chewie. Um, yeah. I can see a future there for, for more, you know, solo adventures. Yeah. This, the stuff with, um, yeah, you're quite right. The stuff with Chewie and Han is my favorite Han stuff in this film. Yeah. 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 Han Han. Han Han? Because when, you know, when he says Han? Yeah. And he goes, that's no, Han. Like, <laughs> like Lando and, and Han are saying that back and forth. And I really like that. Yeah. He's like, what's well, Han? And uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So overall, I just say, you know, really enjoyable. And I definitely watch it again. Right. Um, yeah. Which is the first time I've probably said that. Seeing as I haven't seen any of the others again. I haven't, uh, I've never seen Force Awakens oh, more than once. I've seen Force Awakens three times now. Wow. Um, uh, once just because I felt I had to give it a second go. Yep. Um, and the third uh, work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I still don't rate it. Mm. Um, it just yeah it feels like a real missed opportunity uh, yeah. for me. Um, Last Jedi, I've watched it again. The things that annoyed me annoyed me. Rogue One, I've watched it, I think, three times and enjoyed it each time. Right. Yeah, I mean, I happily kick back and watch Rogue One. Yeah. Again, I just haven't got around to it. I just don't have a copy of any of them. So, um, yeah. Whereas sitting on my DVD collection, I have a copy of um, Attack of the Clones. So it's, <laughs> it's disturbing that yeah. uh, I've got that there. But, um, yeah, so, hey, we, we often do this anyway. So we, we would yep. fit in your, in your rankings if you're going through your rankings. Should I do my rankings top to finish? Yeah. Okay. Empire Strikes Back. Still number one. <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah. This is where it gets dicey because I rewatched Return of the Jedi recently. Yeah. And there's so much that doesn't work about that. Yeah. So much. Han Solo, as a character, has nothing to do in this film. Yeah. He spends a lot of the time with Ewoks on Endor. Yeah. With nothing to do yeah. with a bunch of murder bears. Yeah. Uh, but I don't mind Ewoks as much as a lot of people. Yeah. And I love everything Luke does in this film. Yeah, like his journey, oh, his final confrontation, so good. And the space battle is still probably the best space battle in the Star Wars series. Right, yeah. So I'm still going to keep it at number three. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to go Rogue One. Right. Um, then I'm going to go controversial here, Revenge of the Sith. Right. Uh, because it 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 of the of those prequels, I think it it rounds it out the best. And I watched yeah. all of the prequels recently, yeah. so I have a softer spot for them because they actually. Actually, they do a lot of world building really well in a way that the yeah. new films don't do at all well. Right. Um, I, controversial, I know. No, but, no, not at all. Um, and then I'm going to say, this is really hard because I've only watched it once, but then I'm going to say Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to say The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've obviously got problems with The Last Jedi. Yeah. But I did particularly enjoy the fight with the guards. Mm-hmm. And I love some of the space battle, the way it was shot and the sense of perspective you get between ships. Yeah. So... You know, some some visual stuff in that film really works for me. Um, then I'm going to say The Phantom Menace. Right. Because uh, we get Darth Maul, who is obviously killed, and we never see from him again. Yeah, but he has a great scene. He has a great fight scene in that film. <laughs> um, and, and I guess for that alone, and also the great music. Mm. The, the, oh, uh, Jewel the of the Fates. Jewel of the Fates is epic. Yeah. 
Um, and then I'm going to go second from the bottom here, mm -hmm. The Force Awakens, because it it, oh. it should have done so much more to launch, relaunch this. Yeah. And then if you don't have Attack of the Clones at the bottom, you're not <laughs> watching the Star Wars franchise properly. <laughs> how, sorry, how about you? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think ours are pretty pretty similar, although I, I just launched Solo up there. So obviously I'm going Empire, Star Wars, A New Hope. A New Hope, uh, yes. sorry, yes, quite right. Uh, so Empire, A New Hope, Jedi, because I love, for all the reasons you just stated, um, I love Luke Skywalker in there. And we were talking like we were talking about character arcs. You go from Luke Skywalker as idealistic farm boy in nineteen seventy seven Star Wars, just six years later, the opening when he walks in and it's just like force choking Gamorrean guards mm. and you know, you'll bring which surely that's a dark side move, right? It feels dark sidey. Yeah. But then again we're in a we're in a time when um, you know, when uh there's no real Jedi around. So But I also think they were trying to suggest that it could go either way. For yeah, this exactly. You know? Yeah, which is great. Yeah. Um, but that's just six years, three films. I love that, and he he's he's developed so well. So yeah, I'll definitely go Jedi. Um, and uh, the then probably controversially, I'm going to go uh, Solo. Uh, I think Solo's in at four for me. Um, for a, just purely as a film, I'd watch again. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right in there. Then I'll probably go Rogue One. Yeah. Uh, then I'm going to go Revenge of the Sith. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Yep. So you uh, rate it about the same. You rate yeah. it almost the same place as me. Yeah, I, I'd probably be exactly the same as what you've said, except I'd put Solo above Rogue One. Yep. Uh, and then everything else definitely attack clones down the bottom. I'm, I'm, I'm really questioning on Force Awakens, Last Jedi. I'd almost have to watch them again as to what I said in the review of Last Jedi. The stuff I loved in Last Jedi, I loved more than I did in Force Awakens. But the things that bothered me were bothering me in the cinema more than Force Awakens. But yeah. the end of got to Force Awakens is like, yeah, actually there's a lot of problems I have when it's just a remake of Star Wars. So yeah. um I actually think probably I would put um Force Awakens above Last Jedi. Okay, yeah. Um yeah. I, I can completely understand it. Yeah. The thing for me with Force Awakens, I mean I watched it like definitely on second and third viewing, there was so little I really liked about it. Um whereas there were things I really did like about Last Jedi. But there are the things I hated about last year. Yeah, man, they're powerful. Oh, they, they are powerful. And look, a lot of this is—I mean, obviously, you know, it's needless to say, it's obvious that all of this is subjective. But a lot of this is down to because we love Star Wars so much when we grew up with it. So a lot of it's also about the time that I watched these in, which is why Jedi will always be up. The last, uh, sorry, Return of the Jedi will always be up there for me because yeah, that's perfect age. I remember watching oh, the cinema sure, all sure. the rest of it. Um, and same with Solo, like Solo, I was just like, oh, I'm so relieved that they've just taken the brakes off here. Like, it's not as, um, it doesn't have that kind of aimless um, first half that Rogue One has. It doesn't have all of the issues that Last Jedi had. So I just feel like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, it's it's not perfect by any stretch, but I think we're kind of uh, heading on the right track. Yeah, you know? it's very breezy and entertaining in the moment. I yeah, think. and I, I, you know, a lot of people have kind of said, I, once I had you know, sat down and wrote a review, I've read a few other things, people say, ah, oh, it's low stakes. And I'm like, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the end of the entire universe with metachlorines and force and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad it's low stakes. I guess it kind of couldn't be anything but. I mean, because yeah. you know that these characters will survive, you know where they end up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it also doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't have all the kind of creepy, um, you know, Grandma Tarkin uh, kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah. like like all bringing back, you know, young 20-year-old Carrie Fisher. Oh, my goodness. Thank, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, hey, look, just stick around for the end of the uh, 
look, after all of the podcast, after our final song and our, our little outro, have a listen because we're going to talk just a brief little spoiler part about this, which yep. we wanted to keep in there in case you haven't seen it. Um, yep. And we're just going to have a talk about a couple of things there. All right, uh, we're just going to take a break right here, mm-hmm. uh, refresh, grab some Wookiee cookies, <laughs> and sit down, and in our part two of this podcast, we'll look at Star Wars The Holiday Special. Yeah, and a bit of uh, Tree of Woe action, and we're going to talk about a couple of spoilers for uh, for Solo. Yep, so uh, join us for part two. Come on, Molly, let's see a little smile. Come on. <laughs> there, that's better. Try to enjoy your life day. <laughs> <laughs> 